Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. From KQED. Hey everybody, it's Devin Kadayama back from paternity leave, doing well. And I just want to say I'm so grateful to Erica for hosting the last five weeks and to all the wonderful people who've been making the show while I've been gone. That's Aditi Banlamudi, Shannon Lynn, Marisol Medina Cadena, and our editor Alan Montecilio. Thank you all so much. If you can think all the way back to pre-COVID days, like January. The big story here in the Bay Area was housing. Then 2020 happened. Calls to end racism are growing louder, not just across the country, but here in the Bay Area. It's crazy, ominous looking sky, just smoke everywhere. The past 24 hours have been the deadliest yet for the coronavirus. Tonight, The thing is though, the that these crises haven't pushed housing away. Whether we're talking about wildfires or talking about uh, racial justice or talking about a public health response to a global pandemic, we're talking about housing. All of it comes back to how we build, where we build. It's housing. KQED's launched a new podcast this week called Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. And today we'll talk with the hosts and our housing reporters, Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon about why finding solutions to the housing crisis is still the story. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Before we get into the podcast itself, I want to ask you both a personal question because you're both housing reporters, but you're also both from the Bay Area. And I'm curious because you are housing reporters, when you talk about housing in the Bay Area with your family and with your friends, what are those conversations like? And Molly, I'll start with you. The Bay has always been home. 
as an adult, when I moved away and I went to college and I lived in other places, you know, I talked to my brother, my dad, my friends that still lived there. And I don't know, it was just, it, it felt like this place was changing. And the thing that people talked about when they described that change, it always came back to, oh my gosh, I'm paying this much for rent, or I don't know if I can live here anymore. This place feels like it's changing. All these new people are moving in. There's nowhere that I feel like this is still my place. So, I mean, coming back, it's just been really interesting because especially as a housing reporter, it's like this collective anxiety and stress over how expensive this place has been. And being able to interrogate your home in a place that doesn't feel like home anymore, it's just been, it's its sort of hard to, to grapple with that. Totally. But it's also made for a really interesting experience and perspective as a housing reporter here. Totally, totally. And when I moved back to the Bay Area like five and a half years ago, it's the same thing. Like I, I had no conversations about housing in Louisville when I moved back here. It was like you could not escape conversations about it. And it was never a positive feeling for me. Right, and almost people were, like, doubting, like, are you sure you want to <laughs> yeah, move back? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> like, I don't think you know how bad it is. Yeah. <laughs> and Aaron, what what have the conversations you've had been like? Yeah, so I had a similar kind of experience with uh, Molly and, and you were saying. And it was funny because when I was living out in Boston, everyone kept asking me why I left California because of, you know, California, the Bay Area is so idyllic in so many ways. But when I came back, it was like everyone was asking me, why I came back and and whether I was going to leave again because the quality of life is so it can, can be really hard um, and then wanting to settle down and and you know maybe even one you know buy a house one day it just seemed really hard to do that it seems impossible to do that right now how would you both characterize how people talk about housing in the bay area there's literally no one who's not touched by Mm-hmm. the high cost of housing. But I also feel like it's talked about in such extreme terms. You know, I mean, the way especially reporters, you know, traditionally focus on housing in the Bay Area is, you know, just the high costs, uh, the the like impossibility of being able to afford anything, uh, evictions yeah. happening all the time. And this fatalistic, mm-hmm. you know, idea. Right. Like it's impossible thing. Yeah. So then how, as housing reporters did you approach the idea for a housing podcast with all this in mind? Originally, this was going to be more of a historical podcast. This was going to be a look back at like how California became this housing nightmare. What switched for us was that the coronavirus pandemic hit. We started to think that, okay, it seems like this pandemic is going to really exacerbate all of the inequalities within our housing system. And perhaps this could be a real moment where we could start thinking about how we live differently. And that's sort of what led us down this path of really thinking more about taking a solutions-focused approach to our podcast. And, you know, to add to that, the protests over police killings of Black people just really kind of added to that framework of having to really take a look at how do we rethink a more equitable society? What would that look like? And that was also kind of in our minds of if we're going to start with trying to imagine a future where everyone has equal opportunities in life, we really have to look at housing because so much of our opportunities stem from 
where we live, our neighborhoods, and what kind of access we have to schools or parks or clean air um, even. So it really all comes back to housing. There is no silver bullet solution to the housing crisis, and that is something that we saw very acutely in the reporting of this series. But there are many solutions that can help move the needle and can help make housing more affordable to more people and more accessible to more people that we can start implementing right away. And now, Molly, I want to start with you going into the first uh, kind of quote unquote solution. In a lot of ways, the pandemic has forced us to come up with some solutions for housing people fast, right? There hasn't been time to waste because for a lot of people, it's a matter of life and death. So what's one example, Molly, of a, of a solution that was born from this rush to respond? One of those that we talk about in our first episode is this idea of using hotels and converting them into, you know, some sort of emergency housing to get folks that are experiencing homelessness and that are living on the street to get them housed during this pandemic. This model, this idea, this program was launched by California Governor Gavin Newsom back in April. Uh, this was the crisis that predated the current crisis in the state of California. Uh, and we're doing everything in our power to meet it head on. He made the announcement outside of a motel in Sacramento. And, you know, when they launched this program, Project Room Key, the goal was to get 15,000 rooms to house people. You know, that's huge, too. That is a significant right. number. That is 10% of our homeless population in the state of California. And, you know, we talked to a bunch of people about this, and none of them could remember you know, a time when California had made this bold of a move to house this many people this fast. I mean, this was mm -hmm. something that was going to get rolled out in a matter of weeks. Hotels in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, across the state, you know, began leasing them and people started to move in. And now we're at a space where that that program is actually changing and turning into something that, you know, Newsom is calling another name, Project Home Key. Home Key is essentially to turn that model and make it permanent. Well, it's interesting that the people who you talk to can't remember a time when California moved so quickly to do something so bold because I've heard for a long time from housing advocates and, and just having conversations with family and friends, like we have so many spaces to put people like hotel rooms or, or like just vacant properties um, yet there wasn't really any big program or, or city that was really moving quickly on doing that. But now because of the pandemic, we're starting to see that. This was something that uh, local government officials, elected officials have wanted to do for a really long time. But it's very politically messy to put homeless housing into communities. You get a lot of neighborhood pushback. There's, you know, it takes a long time to go through the sort of environmental reviews. It can take years to get a project uh, up and running. And as the time goes on, the cost goes up, right? So we know that the average cost of developing permanent supportive housing, that's housing with um, you know, sort of social services um, on site, can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And 
this was an opportunity sort of forced by the pandemic to get around that issue of political will and these sort of site development issues um, that you would typically face in, in sort of, quote unquote, normal times. And this was coming at a time where, like, our economy had just stopped, you know, our tourism had stopped. So you had sort of this perfect, you know, moment where all of these hotel rooms were sitting empty because nobody was going anywhere because we were all being told to stay at home. So there was not only this will and 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 this um, need to house people because of those health reasons, those public health reasons, but we also had places to do it. We had rooms available at the ready for people to move into. Has Project Broomkey been seen as a success? Yeah, we talked to a woman named Sanja. Hi, my name is Sanja Latrice Somerville Trotter. I grew up on 69th Avenue and I'm blessed to be here now. She is living currently in a her own studio. She had gone through uh, the Radisson Hotel in Oakland, um, where she was placed in a hotel room. She had been homeless, you know, living on the streets on and off for you know over a decade. She told me when I met with her and I spoke with her, it was completely life changing for her. Um, you know, for her, she was able to do things that she hadn't been able to do before when she was living on the streets, when she was trying to survive. I feel good every day, got my strength back on, look good, I might say. It feel good to have a roof over your head, take a hot shower every day and have some in your stomach. You know, she said that she was back on her medications, she was talking to her family again. There was just a sense of safety and and a feeling that she could relax and not have the stress of just thinking about, you know, where is she going to sleep tonight? Man, sometimes I'll walk around and just shake my keys because I can't. <laughs> it's like jingle bells. It's like Christmas every day. <laughs> These plans to put people in hotels haven't solved all homelessness, but it's clear that the pandemic pushed state and local authorities to do things that they had never done before. On the other hand, there are lots of solutions that haven't been implemented at all. And one possible solution is to do away with a housing policy that has racist roots here in the Bay Area. There's some really obvious fixes that would enable the state to build a lot more housing that um, has been really hard to get past. Um, And one of those is looking at changes to what we allow to be built, like single-family zoning. And actually, that got its start in one of the most liberal, progressive places that we can think of, uh, Berkeley. So single-family zoning was a solution to a problem that developers had. Developers uh, in Berkeley, particularly um, one of the most prominent developers, Duncan McDuffie, he was building neighborhoods that were very high-end, kind of exclusive neighborhoods, and they came with deed restrictions, racial covenants that barred people of color from buying or renting a place in these neighborhoods. But he had another problem, which was what to do about the neighborhoods around this development that he was building uh, that he didn't control. And so he was appointed to a committee in uh, 1915 to help write some of Berkeley's first rules around development, basically telling developers what they can and cannot build. We call these rules zoning, 
Um, it's a very wonky term, but basically it tells you whether you can build apartments or factories or office buildings or warehouses or whatever. But it was really kind of new at this time. Cities were just starting to implement these types of rules. Um, and Berkeley was one of the first to implement this, these types of rules. And in doing so, they, they created single-family zoning, which only allows one home on one lot. And that has contributed to the housing crisis we see today. Interestingly enough, Berkeley is still one of the most segregated cities today, in part because it was one of the earliest to adopt these single-family zoning rules. It has persisted since the early 1900s, so that today, Claremont, uh, North Bray, different parts of Berkeley that were the first to have uh, this single-family zoning adopted is still the most segregated and whitest parts in the Bay Area. Housing used to be the big story here in the Bay Area, but just in the last six to eight months or so, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic, we've had uprisings around police violence and racism, we've had wildfires. Where does housing fit into all this now? Housing is fundamental to almost everything that we measure in our life, whether that's opportunity or whether that's a lack of opportunity. I mean, that's something that we have heard from people who have been organizing some of these protests, you know, fighting for racial justice. It's something that we think about because, you know, something that I think is like kind of the core of what we're trying to talk about in this podcast is how where we live really matters and where we live um, has ripple effects in so many other parts of our life. Uh, a lot of the inequalities that we talk about or a lot of the ways that we're able to gain access to different things, like that really starts in our neighborhoods, where we go to school, whether the city comes and fills your potholes and paves your roads. Um, do you have a grocery store that you can walk to nearby? Uh, it also has to do with the health, you know, whether we are next to places uh, that could cause our asthma rates to go up, our cancer rates to go up, whether we have access to jobs and mentorship opportunities, whether we end up, you know, victims of police violence or end up in prison. So I just think that that is just so foundational. And it's something that we've really tried to hone in on in every single episode that we've done is, you know, looking at whether it's how we zone our neighborhoods, whether it's the roots of racial segregation, um, it's just so important to know that history and know that, you know, none of the inequalities that we still see systemically in our society today are accidental. Um, and, and that in order to sort of move move forward and to kind of think about a more solutions focused future, like like we can't really build a better space to to live. We can't build better neighborhoods that are more open and welcoming to to everyone without acknowledging that first and sort of understanding how we how we got here. It seems like whether we're talking about wildfires or talking about uh, racial justice or talking about a public health response to a global pandemic, we're talking about housing. All of it comes back to how we build, where we build, who we're building for. You know, it all comes back to housing. What are the biggest things you've learned about the Bay Area from doing this reporting? I know it's something that I've thought about at times when we're writing this is 
I don't know, I grew up in the Bay Area and I feel like that was always something that I that I bragged about to people. <laughs> um, there's like a big sense of pride about being from this place and every other oh, yeah. place that I've lived in, it's always like nothing's quite compared. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> I know this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm from the Bay, so. <laughs> and I, I don't know, it's been interesting kind of thinking differently about this place, like especially definitely when we dove into the zoning and we dove into the history and, and thinking more about who these places were built for. My mom is Japanese, I'm half Japanese, and mm-hmm. it's something that I've thought about. Like I've looked at, you know, ads that advertise the neighborhood that I live in now that use language that had racial covenants that said no black people, no Asian people were allowed to rent or own property here. Like that could have been me. You know, I wouldn't have been allowed to live in the place that I live in now. Um, and that kind of, I don't know, it's, it just made me think more about, you know, how much of this place was home. Yeah. Yeah, my grandparents uh, and my dad were raised in the East Bay and Berkeley. And I actually grew up going to Berkeley on the weekends to be with family. And again, while I'm proud of a lot of the things here in the Bay Area, I also recognize that there's a long way to go to make it a place that everybody can love. And it's a privilege to live here. Like, it's a privilege to be able to move back home. Um, and that's something I've thought about as I've seen people leave, as we've reported on people who, you know, are struggling to afford to rent a room in a house. And there's kind of a a hypocrisy, right, too, that we in the Bay Area wear this mantle as being sort of the liberal block of, you know, Democrats and, and progressives. Mm-hmm. And yet um, we seem unwilling to adopt some of these strategies that we know will work and that, yes, maybe no one solution is going to solve everything, but multiple solutions in concert with each other can help us move the, the needle and can help us move forward and make this place truly more inclusive. Thanks to KQED housing reporters Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon. They are also the co-hosts of the new podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. I really want you all to listen to this show, so we'll leave you a link to Sold Out in our episode notes. And if you can, leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts so that more people listen to the show as well. Also, I want to remind you about a podcast survey that KQD is doing to get a better sense of what you, the audience, want from KQD Podcasts. You can take the short survey at kqed.org slash podcast survey, or just check out the link in our show notes. You've been listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. We're made by your local public media station, KQED. The show is produced by Erica Cruz Guevara. Our editor is Alan Montecilio. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for us. Talk to you Friday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.